Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are guests, Zap. And hi, Ron. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 272. So last week, we talked about right to repair. Uh, it's been a big uh, political movement and human rights movement going on the last couple of weeks. Um, we kind of stirred the hornet's nest, it felt like, <laughs> bringing up this topic last week. And so um, instead of bringing on two experts about the topic, we brought on Zap and Hyron. <laughs> Damn. How do you really feel, Foam? <laughs> it's like it was either that or we're gonna show animals from the zoo. So yeah. <laughs> no, but they have a different uh, bringing them on because they have a different perspective on what right to repair means to them. Um them being in uh an open source hardware and building uh hardware for DEF CON and that kind of stuff. So uh Zap and Hyron what do y'all uh, do, so to speak? They, our new listeners might not know what and not XOR is. That's true. It's been a few months. Do you want to go, Hyron? <laughs> so um, as a hobby, we make open source hardware um, to have games and security challenges and just to try to teach ourselves and others about embedded systems. And we do it in the form of an electronic conference badge. And what comes with that is, you know, some capture the flag events, some nifty interactive features that usually you got to be in person for, um, leveraging different radios and um, teaching people how we do it and open sourcing it, throwing it up on GitHub, sharing it, enabling people to fix the badges themselves when they break. For those on Twitch... If I had my badges unpacked, I'd be showing you an example of one of them. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. Actually, I have one right, box. right here. Yeah, Zap and I oh, literally and just both moved. Like, yeah. my walls are bare. <laughs> we have nothing up right now. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're usually uh, some form of art um, blinded with some open source. Uh, open source maybe is a little bit of a stretch, but uh, we certainly release the schematics and, and some of the Gerbers and whatnot. Um, and we've seen people make their own before, so that's that's kind of fun. Uh, usually, you know, people copy parts of the design. Uh, we saw one, I think it was our second badge almost five years ago. Somebody basically re reformed it in the shape of a monkey, and um, they actually took it on a cruise. They took like 80 of them on a cruise, and there's a picture of Will Wheaton walking around with their badge and our badge around his neck. Hmm. So it's pretty neat. Good times. So, yeah, answering your question, you know, what's badges, what's what's open source things we do. Um, so when you think about that, like we're, we'll be at a conference with, you know, there's thousands of people around, hundreds of people wearing the badge, and we want to teach people how to repair it. Um, you know, big surprise when you have people those thing, electronic devices, embedded systems on a lanyard banging around. They hit each other. They break sometimes. Sometimes people spill something on them. Um, and, you know, people are eager to learn. Sometimes it's, hey, this busted off. I've never soldered before. Can you, you know, find a shady corner and let's, like, rig up a soldering iron and fix it? Un or, un unplug the uh, the uh, slot machine, plug your soldering iron in. Yeah, yeah, that's a good spot. <laughs> 
But, you know, going through the whole, like, hey, teach me how to repair this, or, you know, and we'll show them, hey, look on GitHub, there's, like, our common top 10 failures on this thing, and here's how you would tear it down and replace it or something. Um, so I, I think from, like, a, a maker or hacker perspective, like, that community tends to be more open and information sharing because that community is really much driven by the whole mantra of, of learning and, and getting more knowledge out there. Um, though at the same time, I mean, we all wear different hats. There's the, I work at a company hat. I'm a consumer hat. I'm a maker hat. Um, as a consumer, I'm, I'm more in Blitz's boat where, uh, I vote with my dollar. Um, I buy Android stuff because of that. Um, like I did a little write up on, on a Hackaday post on, I wasn't happy with my Wear OS watch and granted I messed around more in the firmware you know, application layer because I can go in ADB and go in there and start configuring it because it's Linux. And I taught people how to do that. But I chose to spend my money with that manufacturer, with that company, because I can. Um, but that doesn't mean I can really start tearing apart that watch and and soldering or desoldering stuff or really understanding what's going on in that because it's still a little proprietary. But I don't think uh, any of the Android manufacturers are going out of their way to stop me from repairing it or, or telling I fix it. No, you can't touch this. Do you think that is a problem if somebody is trying to stop you from repairing? Not trying to deal with that whole, do I own the device? Am I still light, uh, what is it, licensing it, paying it off kind of thing? But at the end of the day, if, if I own something... Um, yeah, it sucks if they don't put out manuals or information on how to repair it. But yeah, if someone's going out there saying, hey, I'll sue you for trying to repair this, or or I'm going to go out of my way to make your life hard and punish you because, you know, you ripped the tag off the ma- on your little mattress, digital mattress. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the big white thing behind Zap. It's, it's the elephant. <laughs> it's literally the elephant in the room. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the certain manufacturer behind me is very famous for uh, not liking uh, or not letting people repair the firmware in their tail light or uh, or the wheel well or whatever. Um, it is Elon is listening right now. But you know, at the same time, like you know, I I bought the car, paying for all the the support behind it. But for for me personally. I have no intention of messing with the car. That's not my hobby, right? Uh, I want it to work and I want it to have new features, but I don't have the time in the day uh, with the family and my day job to, to go and mess with it. Uh, but I think if somebody wanted to, you know, they should be able to say, Hey, void the warranty. You know, I don't want any of the support, but I want to go mess with it and do everything, anything I want to. It's my car. If they don't let me do that, then is it really my car? Uh, and am I just leasing it at that point? In which case, I shouldn't be the one taking the depreciation. They can't have it both ways. Um, yeah, right. So now to be be fair, if if you're like in an organization where you you manage a bunch of products, like not just man, you're manufacturing stuff, you have a whole product line, and you have a staff of people that provide support to fix these things. I get the whole point of view of. You know, I can train my staff to provide technical support or whatnot for the things we make. But if you think about how many millions of customers someone may have, and then all these, I shouldn't say onesie twosies, but the number of influx comes in, like, 
I need help. Um, I removed this DVD player from my PlayStation and put my own thing in there. Now it doesn't work. You need to help me. Um, I know that's an extreme example, but I can imagine as a company, you're like, we got to draw the line somewhere. If, if you're making unauthorized changes, why should I be on the hook to help you with that? Um, but, you know, and we made, we made a point fairly similar to that, uh, last week and in the same vein with, with Tesla and Apple, they have uh, a particular brand and they have, uh, what, what is it? They, they basically have a standard that they try to keep in everyone's mind of this is a particular luxury item that you buy. And yes, you're subscribing to all of the extra baggage that comes along with that. But uh, when you buy one of those things, you know it operates in a very particular way. And a lot of people purchase it because it operates that way. Uh, and, but that comes along with... Uh, some pretty stiff rules and regulations on how it gets repaired effectively. Exactly. You know, I, I used I, to make, I was saying this before we, we went live, but I used to build my own kernel modules. I used, you know, used to compile a kernel from scratch and it was great. And I got a little bit of performance out of it. Uh, but, you know, now at some point you just, that's not where I want to spend my time. So I'll just accept the defaults. Um, where I do spend all my time is making my own hardware or, or uh, writing my own C code for my own devices. And yeah, I know Parker does a lot of stuff on his Jeeps and <laughs> and all that. He wants... <laughs> the joke is my Jeeps are, are 70 mile an hour driving down the freeway weld beads. Yeah, so. there's more fresh <laughs> weld beads than there is original material. Yep. Um, <laughs> so we kind of open up this topic of right to repair. So... Um, so I kind of went over over the weekend down kind of like the list of what like I fix it. Uh, we we it, it, they the call manifesto. it the manifesto. <laughs> um, I also went through um, a couple of the there's a couple of other different links uh, from last week of like what what they mean by right to repair and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of just jotted down some notes of stuff that I see a lot in other products of. Stuff that won't really work that is currently done that if you were trying to implement these kind of things. like So the first one is like ease of opening of a device to repair. Like snap together enclosures are like the bane of everyone's existence that's probably listening to this podcast. <laughs> Everyone's um, had that flathead screwdriver marks that just deform plastic around where you think a tab is. Yeah, yeah, yeah where you think a tab is. Um, this sounds awesome because how awesome would it be if everything was just screwed together and you can easily just take stuff apart to fix it? That um, would be great, but then we don't get all these wonderful like waterproof phones, right? That that's actually one thing is the waterproof phones, but you can have waterproof things that are screwed together. But um, yeah, but then the cost of everything goes up because you need threaded inserts and you need gaskets and you gaskets. need all this, so just everything gets more pricey. Yeah, and. It does your grandma want all that? That's true. Um, but that's the reason why phones are hard to open now is because everything it needs everything needs to be thin because it's a phone because everyone wants thin phones. But the only way to make it that thin and also waterproof is to just glue it all together. I'm actually surprised they're not potted yet. 
<laughs> just just urethane, just flat. In- yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm super surprised that hasn't been done yet. That's like um, anti-right to repair. Yeah, <laughs> for <fun>. sure. <laughs> um, and then there's also the thing of like no security screws, but I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I have, it's, I, I did not plan this. This is a box of security bits. Like every single security bit that you need is in this box. And it's like $10. Um, having security screws does not prevent people from opening up your device. Maybe back in like the 90s it did or prior where you couldn't just go on Amazon and order $10 worth of bits. But um, I don't view security screws as a way of keeping people out of your device. I view it as keeping people who don't have any idea what to do out of your device. Well, then they're very strategic at that point. Yeah, I mean that they made a conscious decision to make sure they had the right security bit before they opened it up and like expose themselves to high voltage or something like that. Well, and and I know Apple uses security bits on their phones, but they are screws, I should say, not bits, um, but they use them very strategically. There's only like one or two, and it's it's the ones to get in, basically. Everything else after that is a normal fastener, mainly, I mean, probably because of cost, but it's clear that they use them in those locations to make sure that you don't get in. Yeah. Um. But again, you can go on Amazon right now and buy the Apple screwdriver for like $2. But let's be honest, like <laughs> we're the, these four people are the kinds of people that might open a phone, right? You no, know, no, what I'm saying is you're not preventing the people who can get in there. You're only preventing just Joe Schmo that's like, oh, there's a Phillips head screwdriver yeah. on here. I'm just going to open it up. Derek, it's like layered defense. Like you're looking at, okay what's the first couple of passes of people that are just going to see this kind of bit and go, nah, not worth it. Those are, there's probably a high correlation between, I don't know what anything is that isn't a Phillips head bit uh, to, Hey, help me. I broke this thing while taking it apart. Correct. And granted, can, can, I, I, can I just I've do a really quick by taking them apart, but I'm not going to call the tech support complaining about it. And then the next thing is is what I see a lot is ultrasonic welding of enclosures and potting. Like there's some enclosure or some products that are only that's the only way you can make them. You can't have a gasket or whatever because the device is too small. Um, and you have to ultrasonic weld it and pot it. And it's like, well, that unit there's no repair of that thing at all. Because the moment you can't reseal it or anything like that. Um, it's a lot like that uh shark uh shark um cleaner pool cleaner that i fixed um it's screwed together yeah. it's screwed together and everything but the moment you pull it apart there's no way to put it all back together because the gasket was just all all messed up and it basically only goes together once but a lot of glue fixes that <laughs> so i made it even just, more unrepairable <laughs> it, it's that's been a couple of years right yeah it still works yeah it still works nice yeah <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that a bunch of glue won't fix, yeah. <laughs> so so fancy in chat is asking, what's your favorite security screw design? The ones on bathroom stalls where they only go one direction and not the other. Oh, I hate those. <laughs> I never understood why they do that too. It's like, is someone really gonna sit there taking a poop and like <laughs> unscrew those? Uh, the, the fact that they exist means yes, somebody. It means will yes, do that. it happened. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so we had those, our, the, the house we're selling when we bought it, it had bars in the window and that was a tight, it had these massive bolts that you could it only went one way. Uh, and we'd have, we, I couldn't take them off. I'd have a special, I had to hire somebody to do it. The one that I love hated the most. So I just got a house came with the ring doorbell. Finally time to charge it. Um, I threw the the ring, the ring security screwdriver. I threw it away because I'm like, I have Torx screwdrivers and Torx bits. Little did I realize Ring actually has a little bump on their security screw. So oh, you it's need security Torx. Yeah, you need a security torque with a little divot in it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just... sitting there going, "You son of a." <laughs> yeah, go on Amazon and okay, now I got a full set. But or you get um, your Dremel out and you just kind of. Dig yeah, into like, flat like this. <laughs> well, it's it's inside of it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So it yeah. like I was sitting there like trying to dig my existing Torx wrench on there, and I'm like, you mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so there's a trick. There's a trick. Getting to a those, little by file. The I'm like, <laughs> there's a little trick to those, by the way, because the pegs are usually a lot smaller. Um, you can just take a a small screwdriver and then tap that that peg out of the Torx. Oh, just just knock the bump off. Yeah, you can knock the bump out of it by, by <laughs> risk it reward. Off. I'm like, I'm sitting there with a hammer, going, I could break this, or I can go on Amazon Prime and have an entire set for five dollars tomorrow. That's what I do. <laughs> I actually like the security torques a lot. Um, it doesn't really impede if, uh, like the the one way bathroom ones are just a pain in the butt. So. <laughs> Or our throwback tri wings from Nintendo. Was that is that the triangle ones? Yeah, the tri tri, tri wing Phillips. The uh, the triangle ones you can still get a flathead in there if it's small enough, and you can still. Yeah, but no. I'm curious. Oh, tri wing is still, okay. Never mind. This is a triple. Yeah, to pull, yeah, they're like the weird little. Yeah. Yeah. It's a triforce. Phillips. I like this a lot. Thanks. I took apart many and many Game Boys back in the day. Um, so the next thing is access to manuals. So we went to like ease of opening repair for repairs. Access to manuals. Yes. So what, what I was really getting with this one is like, I mean, there's a lot of small and medium volume products that I work on that don't have manuals like at all. Even manuals to build the products let alone repair them. So it's like, what do you do if, if let's say right to repair went and act, went into place. And then basically companies were forced to provide manuals. Well, what if you're one dude in a garage and you can barely even put together documentation to put your device together to get built? I mean, how are you going to be? There's no manual. What do you do in that case? You give away free product to people willing to write your manual. <laughs> you turn your you, device over. Please call 713 yeah. blah, 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 blah uh, for the manual. And it's just you. You send one to I fix it with a six pack of beer. Say, please help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they just come up well, with a screwdriver kit for it. <laughs> well, and how long do you get to maintain those manuals too? Right. If, you discontinue the product. Do you have to keep those for five years or 10 years? Uh, you, know, you probably have a responsibility to put it, to publish it somewhere in the public domain, but I don't think yeah. most 
garage based companies are that responsible or, you know, if you're going out of business, are you really going to spend resources doing that? I don't know. No, yeah. You're not. That's the answer. Yeah. You're not doing that. And, and okay. So how accurate do they need to be as well? So in other words, like let's say you make a small revision to your part and it's now red as opposed to blue. Well, it doesn't look like your manual anymore. And if that confuses somebody and now they, uh, they have problem fixing your thing, is it your fault because it's a different color? I know that's a little bit ridiculous. I'm getting extreme there, but like to what level of change or to what degree of accuracy does your manual have to be constant? I'm more worried about just like, I mean, that's, that's a concern, but I'm just more worried about like small and medium volume companies that just don't have the resources to do this kind of documentation because they just don't do it. Their repair, their repair shop is like that weird dude in like the back, you know, lab. (laughs) <laughs> or just set up a wiki or a forum and let your customers do it for you. <laughs> a lot, a lot of small volume companies do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those when I think about where like the um, the right to repair for automotive worked out okay because all the automotive companies are ginormous and they already build repair manuals that they provide their their own service departments, so they just have to go okay, third party you know, mechanics, here's the same documentation. Right. Fine. But now you're talking about, you know, dude soldering amps in his basement and sell and selling them. Now he has to provide that documentation. I know who would do that. <laughs> what soldering <laughs> or amps me in the basement? building pinball boards. It's like, now do I have to provide like my brain on how to fix that? Cause that's the documentation is my brain. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Have fun. Like, uh, start cloning my brain in jars. I, I, you know, I keep going back to this, and maybe it's a political stance of some sort. But like, if uh, if you really care that much about manuals, and you research a company and they don't provide manuals, don't buy their don't stuff. Buy Go to yeah. someone who does yeah. provide manuals. Don't use the government to beat someone over the head and say you must provide manuals. Use your dollars as incentive for them to write manuals if it's that important. Right, I so, think for most people, unfortunately, it's not. Right, they they'll just hey this it, this little IoT device broke. Okay, I'll throw it away, which they shouldn't be doing. I'll throw it away and I'll just buy a new one on Amazon because it's you know five bucks. Well, it, it's that, but people don't think about needing the manual until they need the manual. To talk about repair manuals, so. Is. Tell, tell me what you think about this. Um, I recently was looking for a lot of appliance manuals. Um, moved. There was like, you know, a furnace, washer, dryer, fridge, a, a stove hood. And, you know, I'm going online. I'm like, what's this? What's that? And more often than not, what I'm running across is, um, I don't know, maybe it's freemanuals.ru slash, you know, not malware.com. Um, <laughs> but in general... Um, after safely sandboxing and getting access to these somewhat malicious PDFs, you can tell that they aren't like the OEM manuals. They're ones that they provided to like mom and pop shops that were trusted repair agents. So it's like there's this, oh, you can get manuals, but you have to be a licensed service paying member to get them. You know, should those be open source and free? Are, are they are under right to repair? Are they meeting the obligation by saying, oh, we'll put them out there 
if you pay for our like serviceable third party kind of annual fee to do that. Yeah, you get your uh, Adobe Creative Suite of PDFs <laughs> subscription service. Yeah, it, I mean, it just seems weird. Like, no, the average person can't have this manual unless you pay the service fee to uh, Maytag or Frigidaire or something. There was a, oh, there, to go off this, there was a, oh man, back in college, when I was in college, there was a, a service that you could sign up for and pay them because they paid all the other companies for those manuals. And so you would pay a smaller percentage just to have access to them, the access to the like, library. Hmm. So I did that in college because I fixed appliances a lot. Why? Why did I mean? Why charge for them? Right? Is that just to keep the barrier of entry high? I think it's so to prevent that... the yeah. It's to prevent you know normal DIYer from like being able to repair them. That's totally what yeah. it is. Because like twelve, I think the, this company behind me, I think they charge like twelve hundred or something for their manuals, or for access to the portal to the manuals. And for me, that's too much. But maybe for like a random shop somewhere if they're repairing a few a week okay that makes a little more sense but no, so it's 100 explicitly to prevent people like you and me okay well yeah, and in, how- in your example if that shop does spend the 1200 to buy it then they can put on their sign outside we fix this particular one and they get more business hmm. there is a, a question in the uh, twitch chat i don't know if you want to get to that but yeah that's uh so Deathcon12345 says, a tiered system for the right repair. Different size company provides different levels of support. So I think this rolls back to just like, if it, it, it for me at least too, it's like, if, it, if it's that important to you, then just don't buy from that company if they don't provide it. Um, I know that's kind of hard for some people to swallow, especially if they like, I like the iPhone, but I also want to fix it. it it's like, I won't, I won't, for me, I like to work on my cars. I'm not going to buy a Tesla because I know Tesla does not like that. So I am not going to buy a Tesla. As much as I don't like Teslas, I'm not going to buy a Tesla. But that Cybertruck. I actually got my $100 back for that. So. Oh, did you really? I thought you were buying yeah. like three or four of them. But buy three or four of them. Yeah. I, I mean, as a compromise, a whole team no, no. approach makes sense. Like yeah. that would protect the small, like, hey, I'm working out of my garage. I can't afford to do this, but if I'm a Fortune 500 company, that's already higher, doing this stuff. We have a higher expectation of you, or rather, don't put up as much effort into preventing people from doing things with stuff that they legally own. I mean, does yeah. it matter who you're selling to as well? I mean, if if you're making your your pinball boards for only pinball manufacturers, does it apply to you then? Because I imagine if they need the documentation, they should be paying you for it. You're not selling mm. direct to consumer. Correct. Well, and, and one other thing, just to make sure that we're framing this properly, a lot of the complaint or a lot of the reason why right to repair even exists isn't necessarily for the individual to repair their product. It's the ability to take your iPhone somewhere other than the genius bar uh, or to you take it to the place down the street uh, that you oh, want. You, you want know. to take it to a third party repair shop and then and then the third party repair shop having access to these manuals having access to the parts or or whatever mm-hmm. it's the uh, one of my friends i think his name is uh chris craft um had uh texted me this example because he he listened to last week's podcast and he said um 
there might be a confusion issue with this right to repair. Um, is it right to repair versus right to be repaired? Hmm. Meaning, I mean, like Tesla, if you if you turned around right now and took your and and took a wrench to your your Tesla and fixed something, I don't know if there's anything broken on it or not, but like Tesla can't do anything. The, the FBI is not going to kick your door down, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so you do have the right to repair it. Now you don't have the right; it doesn't have the right to be repaired. In terms of like your warranty being intact and that kind of stuff. Well, and and you went into a voluntary contract with Tesla when you bought that car or with Apple when you buy their phone. You signed a piece of paper saying, I agree to all of these terms. You know, you yes, I guarantee you 99% of people didn't read any of those things whatsoever. But I mean, it's a voluntary agreement saying I'm, I'm okay with this. Didn't they rule that EULAs aren't binding? I don't know. I don't know. Can't remember. I Something just clicked agree. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Scroll <laughs> no, down, but... hit okay. The worst of when you scroll down and hit okay, and it has a timer. <laughs> no, Zap. Didn't you say that? Was there a Canadian situation where Tesla oh, was trying to? Yeah, we were talking about that before, but uh, before I guess we went live, they. Uh, some Canadian company, I, I can't pronounce their name. It's French something or other. Sorry. Uh, but they just call them out how to... Poutine Corps. <laughs> I think it's like Tim Hortons or something. Yeah. Uh, Tim, Hortons, <laughs> Tim Hortons Poutine. Um, they, they found a way you know, to hack the software and add 50 horsepower to the car. And it, it, it messed around with the front motor or something. I don't know. Um, and they started selling this mod for... 800 bucks. Well, it's the same thing you can get in the app. You know, I can click the app in my phone and at, for 2000 bucks, my car goes a half second faster than the zero to 60. It's pretty crazy, but same thing that Tesla's selling in August. It turns out that Tesla pushed that was in June in August, Tesla pushed out a software update that detected their mod and then warned people they're avoiding their warranty. So it's, it's, it's pretty sketchy. Cause it's like, Hey, if I want to do that, yeah, let me avoid my warranty. I, Maybe I don't need your support, but it's still my car. Yeah, you know, it's this doesn't typically fall under right to repair, but something that's been going on for 20 years, it's kind of in the similar vein. I think about like right to modify. You know, you may not be repairing, but you're altering it in some way. Um, if you look at video game manufacturers, like some of the most amazing hardware hacking stories and examples come from like Bunny Wang and working on the Xbox or mod chips or like when when people have figured out the the whole like you pop a little uh, mod booster in the back of a PlayStation you put one disc in swap it out you get the boot code in there and PlayStation and Microsoft and Nintendo they go after people for releasing mod kits and if you think about that I I paid three, four hundred dollars for a console. I own it. I can do whatever I want to it, but they don't want you know mod kits and things getting out. And um, it's you know it's not exactly repairing, but outside of cars and things, there's people going after modders for for that very reason. I, I, I no, it, it it goes to the same kind of grounds as is your right to own the product versus 
leasing or whatever. Do you yeah. actually own it if they say you can't do anything to it? But going back to uh, Zap's example with with Tesla, it's um, the same thing happens in automotive uh, other automotive um, where you could if you can tune if you tune your car to make more power, you're doing it at expense of other things, and a lot of times those other things are also things that will break or wear out faster, and thus, well, well, that's the reason why those void your warranties because oh. You're pushing an extra, let's say, hundred horsepower, and your transmission breaks now. Well, was it because the transmission was actually faulty, or is it because you're pushing more power through it now? But like painting your door red won't break your transmission. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure um, Tesla would find a way to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But uh. Uh, Craft Lab on Twitch has our companies required to make designs or our companies required to make designs that can be okay. Yeah, this is this is actually kind of going back to the first thing, which was ease of opening of repairs, but also basically making making designs um, or forcing companies to design stuff a certain way. Yeah, like, how do you feel about that? No, that's I think that's entirely fair. I mean, like from a from a whole systems engineering point of view if you look at like automotive or aerospace it's very common to have like design for maintainability and and people put contract requirements in saying you know certain uh parts that wear out have to be able to be opened replaced serviced within x number of hours because you may have technicians that operate it um think about like a, a power plant right or, or utility companies or, or trains, airplanes, 747s, where they're, they're going to be coming into uh, an airport and leaving within 45 minutes. Like Boeing and, and whatnot, they have requirements put on them that certain parts are serviceable and easily maintainable because we need technicians to be able to get in, remove, replace, fix the stuff, do what they need to do because they have a business to operate and they got to put butts in seats and take off and go fly somewhere else. So I, I think it's entirely reasonable for someone to put in like maintainability requirements. And um, yeah, that comes at a cost that drives up the cost. I would think anyone doing that is looking at the outset of my customers are going to be commonly paying to do that. Um, and again, that's why as a consumer, you decide with your wallet. Um, if, if you're going to be working on your own vehicle may, and you're going to be changing your own oil, maybe you want a Ford or a Chevy or even a Toyota, but you don't want a Nissan where to even get the oil filter out, you have to reach up and back by five feet and you can't just drop the oil filter out. Um, it's not designed to be maintainable, but a little bit of both. It, it depends. Are you a multi-billion dollar corporation that can, can influence that or are you just a consumer? Yeah, I, I think what this a lot, I think all of us here agree, um, which is might not be a good thing for the podcast discussion, <laughs> but chamber, <laughs> but the it's it's we're we're earing on the side of people should be more um, educated consumers rather than just being a consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and 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 here's the thing, actually, uh, Hiron, the the the. the Talk about airplanes is actually really great. I, I had a chat with somebody a while back, actually at Macrofab. We were talking about the airline industry, 
and how razor thin is everything is for yeah. an airline. Like it, if they have a failure, it's uh, it's kind of a big deal. And it's like globally a big deal. If if an airplane goes down for some reason and there's loss of life, the entire company tanks and it's really hard to recover from that. So they put these requirements when they purchase you know, from a from a manufacturer for when they purchase the actual uh, airplanes themselves, they put these in because they have these requirements of that. Now, here's the thing. Me as the consumer, I don't know those requirements. I have no clue what it is. Yeah, you just I just trust Southwest that Doc- when I put my butt in the seat, I'm getting there, right? Yeah. But but if if I even heard uh, that one airline had one problem, you bet my you bet I wouldn't be flying with them. You know. Uh, when, so when's I your think next trip on a on a Max. <laughs> I think they're still grounded, right? No, they? they're they're flying. I mean, not, I'll, not... I, I'll admit my bias. If I given the choice between a Max and a McDonald Douglas, an MD eighty, I'm going with the MD eighty. <laughs> <laughs> they've they've gone through the beginning of the bathtub curve, and and they're going solid still. They're pretty flatlined, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and and here's the thing. I've heard a few words that I think are key in here. In fact, Craft Labs uh, in in the the Twitch channel, in in two of the the posts, there's the word uh, required, mandate, and I think Hiron, you said the word forced, uh, and that kind of just resonated with me because if you say those words, who's doing it? Who's the one who's mandating? Who's forcing? Who's requiring? Uh, a lot of times that just ends up being the government forcing that. And I'm not here to just say like, oh, anti-government, everything. Uh, but uh, I, I guess my my point is um, sort of back to what, what uh, Crabfoam said. If we just come uh, approach this as um, informed consumers or just even slightly more informed consumers, then we can be individually the ones who are doing the mandate and the forcing and the requirements. Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll I, respond to market forces a lot more than they will to the government. Right? Exactly. I, I mean, at the end of the day, if I'm as big as Apple or Google or whoever, if people still keep spending billions of dollars on the stuff that I sell, I, I don't really care about all the noise. But if there's a mass exodus from a certain marketplace and people stop buying your stuff because you don't engineer it or support it in a way that your consumers want... Uh, then you're going to start paying attention. Um, that being said, I still agree that you know the they, Tesla or whoever shouldn't be going after you or preventing you from trying to repair your stuff. Um, but if they do, yeah, that's a, that's a further reason to to not do business with them. Um, and I'm okay with maybe the government stepping in and saying, hey. You know, you can't go after people for for modding or repairing things that they buy, but um, I'm not going to hold a gun to your head and make you shovel out all these repair manuals and stuff. There's a fine line on it. As with everything, right? No, I I 100% agree. It's one of those, uh, the, if you don't own, it's actually, and also back to what Zap was saying way earlier, is if you don't own it, then the company has to take the depreciation of it as well, meaning that they take it back after it's useless and give you money for it, right? Or just assume the debt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other one... Or you take um, it... Oh. 
Oh, sorry. If if I'm an evil company, I don't want people to repair my stuff. I might be forced to produce the manuals, but not forced to provide the tools. Well, and and that's we talked a lot about that last week. Is that uh, the right to repair is kind of all encompassing here? Uh, In other words, you you providing the manuals, you're providing the. Uh, procedures you're you're providing access to the tools and access to the parts themselves so it's basically you're giving everyone the the entire power to be able to repair and does that extend to source code right a lot of times source code uh today is treated as secret sauce right there's not probably not that much that's special about it but it's intellectual property and uh, a lot of our products today have some sort of ai ml model and yeah that model maybe running in the device, but do they have to make the training data available to you that generate the model? And I mean, there's, there's a there's interesting discussions and I, I don't have any answers for it, of course. So before we jump into that, I want to bring up what um, Fancy brings up a really good comment in, in chat about um, guidelines and regulations for products for easily recyclability, depending on the part. Um, like rare earth metals and lithium batteries, like being able to easily separate those out of the products. Because like right now, if you try to get that like process a phone, good luck, right? Um, I, I I could see like having good guidelines for that. I still don't think it's like a government's job to force companies to do that. Now, if you if you like. If, if, if consumers actually cared about it, then you can market your product as, hey, our product is more recyclable. So at the end of its lifetime, it's easily, it has less e-waste or something like that. But that, that's actually a kind of a, when you think about it, a bad thing to market, I mean, because people don't buy something and think like, oh yeah, three years down the road, this thing's going to be useless now. Especially when you're spending like $800 on a phone. I don't know. That, that's that's spending- a pretty good way to uh, to signal uh, that you've put some thought into something, and that's another good way to uh, inform your uh, or yeah. to keep your your clients informed or mm-hmm. customers, I should say. I I do want to address Defcon's question, where he's he's asking about how does right to repair impact security of products, especially with software. Yeah, that's um, that's the next topic is uh, schematics, circuit diagrams, and firmware, um, where. Those things are kind of considered the secret sauce of your product and where the security of your product lies. Yeah. So this is what I was thinking. I mean, there's a difference between intellectual property and security controls. Um, In general, you shouldn't rely on security by obscurity. You should not rely on the fact that people don't know what's going on. Therefore it's secure. In fact, a lot of very secure designs can be openly shared and showing like, hey, here's kind of a a layered zero trust model. We have, um, you know, different types of cryptography and different types of key exchange. and, And in general, being able to show here's how it works, I would say in the near term, that would affect devices security because most like, IoT embedded system devices. They just rely on the fact that no one knows what's going on and no one's going to go through the trouble of tearing the thing open and and hooking up a a JTAG debugger and figuring out what the heck's like actually going on with it. Um, 
Actually, that's overkill. Most things just have a serial port, and you can see the U-boot console, right? <laughs> yeah, right away. Um, so would it impact the security? Yeah, if people's um, security model is just hiding things uh, and hoping no one ever sees it. But I think openly sharing the internal design and repairability of it shouldn't impact the security if you're doing security right. Um, mm -hmm. That shouldn't force you to reveal like AI models if that just comes as a binary blob uh, that gets flashed on there. But it, you know, as far as your architecture and how you, you compose those types of system to subsystem level components, that shouldn't affect that. If people are doing a good job at engineering, um, if they're trying to squander their security engineering or other things, then um, shame on them. They'll get owned. Um. My my big thing on this is also uh that's because that's the firmware side, kind of. But like in schematics, they're easily reverse engineered. Uh, spending an afternoon with a with a multimeter and a camera, and you can reverse engineer a schematic out of a piece of software uh, hardware. Um, because I, I schematics are not the secret sauce. It's the it's everything else about the product. That that is, um, the layout. The layout is way more important than the schematic is. Agree. Amal, <laughs> let's tilt this just a little bit, and we'll get rid of the RF feedback. And now the FCC certifies it. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, Parker had a great point about that last week. Uh, if you do a repair on something, have you now violated? Uh, FCC rules and did you install something that is now polluting the environment with a bunch of EM yeah yeah I mean yeah maybe someone's like oh here's a here's a thing on how to mod your stuff and get way better reception and now they don't realize like you know um, people's garage door openers stop working or the microwave makes the <laughs> wasn't that um, one of those open source uh, firmwares that would run on routers got in trouble for that did OpenWRT get in trouble for that? It might, it might be that one, but one, I think one of them got in trouble by basically like the hardware was able to like be cranked way up on the on the broadcast range, and the the normal firmware, you know, of course, locked it down, so you would be in FCC regulation. But the open open source firmware was like, oh yeah, you can just crank that thing all the way up. Oh, <laughs> there's a yeah, trimmer was, on the board uh, that says "Do not turn." I just said a quick Google. It was OpenWRT. You could crank the power up beyond FCC limits. Yeah. So it's like, who's at fault for that at that point? So, you know, that, that brings like up you, an interesting... You designed hardware that could exceed it, but when you offered the product, you did limit it. So to be fair, I mean, right to repair is a huge umbrella. Like we're talking about John Deere tractors and because we work in electronics, we're all thinking about like hardcore electronics, but that brings up an interesting point. People don't often consider the FCC and what people do with electronics and RF and what kind of in interference and feedback comes. And so you start crossing that line of, oh, you want right to repair or right to mod. Um, you may be doing something out of ignorance, but is illegal now. And... So therefore, do you need certified third-party or first-party repair people 
to avoid like, oh yeah, I made my phone better and now the stoplights near my intersection stop working or, uh, <laughs> well, okay. And, and even further than that. Okay. So I mod my Xbox in my house and it emits more crap into the environment. Really, honestly, who cares? Uh, it, I mean, I'm saying that I'm saying that in terms of like it's one guy doing one thing. It's not a big deal. But let's say uh, right to repair forces uh, uh, Microsoft to allow third party people to do that exact same repair, and now we've got third party people doing incorrect repairs. Who's at fault at that point? Does Microsoft get the uh, fine from the FCC, or does the third party so, guy for actually doing the the fix? So usually, when you're a third party, like a third party repairer, you have access to the first party stuff. And so your repairs should be legit. Should be. What if, but, but what if, what if they're not, what if the repair I'm just saying is like, I mean, now they have the information cause they have the manual and they can decipher what the repair is and they just figure it out on their own, but it's incorrect, but it works. Like they don't, they put the wrong capacitor on there or they, they, they put the wrong filter on there. And, you know, you they put the wrong filter on there and the shape is completely wrong. And you know, Or hell, the, when they put it back together, they don't something. put the shields back on, you know? Those shields just get in the way. Right, right. I mean, you'd, be a shield. you'd be surprised at how many Atari 2600s I've opened up in, in the day <laughs> that do not have the RF shields in there anymore. Oh, yeah. You put them back <laughs> together, there's like four or five screws still on your desk. Oh, they were just, they were just making the Atari heavy. I'm like, you want this? You want my smartwatch to be faster? Just get rid of all those little shields. It'll be a lot <laughs> better on your wrist. <laughs> um. So what, my big thing on this is it, getting with the schematics and firmware and that kind of stuff. So the right to repair electronics is that stuff would be accessible because you need that stuff to technically fix it. You need the firm. So if you have to replace a microcontroller, you need the firmware so you can flash it. So what mechanics? Also, would the right to repair for electronics put in place to prevent just straight up cloning of your product then? Because that's what this enables. Also, there's going to be more, there's more people that clone Arduinos than repair Arduinos. Oh, oh I, you, sure. know, you find an Ali, <laughs> yeah. Alibaba within a week. Yeah. So, no. That's an extreme example of like, you can buy like the official Arduino for like $30, but you can buy one on like Alibaba for $3. So, what's, what mechanics of right to repair electronics would be put into place to prevent that from happening? Cloning. So, it, so I don't know if you recall our, our badge three years ago, we had that sort of FPGA <laughs> thing in it. Uh, I don't know what you, oh, yeah. I, yeah. What was that called? Um, it was this little tiny, tiny QFN chip, and something actually, green, green pack, green, green pack. Yeah, green pack. They got bought out by someone. I can't remember who it was now, but yeah, green pack. It's yeah. like a little FPGA that you can kind of do programmable analog stuff in. It had like two hundred fifty-six yeah. bits, uh, whatever. Uh, we we use that as our button debouncer, and then some other some other kind of Easter eggs. But one of the reasons we put it on there was to make it harder to clone the badge. Not that we didn't want people to do it. We wanted them to have to figure out how to do it. Because you can buy a straight-up green pack on the you know, off DigiKey, but it what, didn't have any of our instructions in it. But Your you're secret not flashing, sauce. Didn't have our secret sauce. You, you weren't flashing firmware to it. You had to burn in the, the different gates and, and whatnot to make it work. The, the factory actually 
did it for us. They did a reel of 1000. They produced a part number. But you can't just go to the factory and say, I want the Endonics or Green Pack because that was exclusive to us. So they had to figure out a way to to make that work. So that's uh, actually... That's... No, no, no. Actually, that issue comes up with Apple. We talked about this last week. Is They have a charging IC that... It's a normal charging IC, but Apple's got their secret sauce in there. And so that company can only sell it to Apple. Well, part of that right to repair, I, I can't remember his name. The person who's pushing it right now, um, oh, he's the uh, Apple Lewis, repair dude. Uh, Gossman? Yeah, Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, is, that's actually one of his examples is not to being able to buy that component. And he wants to put legislation in to be able to allow to buy that. Doesn't the, Re- the Raspberry Pi has access to, I think the Raspberry Foundation has access to a, a Broadcom chip, right? Isn't that their, their ARM controller? Same thing. It's it's one you can't just yeah. buy on the on the open market. It, it's a blob. No one has, you know, tons of open source relies on the Raspberry Pi, but no one knows what's on that chip. <laughs> yep. It's mining that Bitcoin for you. <laughs> and not using USB-C, right? That's why it's not as powerful as it should be. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's one way I guess you you could control it is uh, with specialized hardware, and then control the supply chain on it. But doesn't that just sort of get you back into the spot where everyone's upset with you that they can't yeah. repair their thing? So, yep. like in other words, if you're the corporation who produces a thing, you just can't win. There's just no well, way to win. So, but so then is I your think... is your is your value in the specific thing, or is it the thing that comes around it? Right? Is it is it your your support, the ecosystem, the apps if it runs apps, the integrations with with Alexa, right? Those sorts of things. Can somebody sell a clone on on Alibaba and no one cares because it doesn't have your label on it? <laughs> hard to answer. Yeah, extremely hard yeah. to answer. Yeah. So I I think. That's one thing, a good question to ask someone that might be more, uh, I mean, this is, this group is kind of like in agreement, it feels like on this topic, but like someone who's more like, actually, that'd be a good question to ask Lewis is we should get him on what <laughs> mechanics would be in place to prevent just straight up cloning. If you are forcing companies to provide this data, then this information, right? Um, so Let's just move on down the list because we have 49 minutes plus like six minutes of the previous recording. Um, ours, ours, so we ours always go about, long. Yeah. So we talked about we talked about Tesla and the and the motor output. Um, oh yeah. So how about how about this also thing with licenses is make licenses more clear about which elements in the machine you are not include that are not included in quotes with the sale. Um, do not allow uh, you know companies to create contract lang- languages that modify or limit support options in the future. That kind of stuff. I think this is kind of like going back to voting with your wallet, but you actually have to read that 100-page like document that you're signing with an OK button. Yeah, but would the average consumer do that? I mean, I know in my day job, we we certainly care about intellectual property of everything we're buying from our upstream suppliers. Uh, we, every, you know, that's, that's written in contract language. We, we pay a pretty penny on that because, you know, we need to support it when they're gone. 
And sometimes that means switching manufacturers or, you know, paying somebody else to produce the part. Uh, oh, and we brought this up er, uh, earlier because of a question, but the whole idea of, you know, we have DFM designed for, uh, uh, designed for manufacturability. We have design, uh, DRC design rule checks, all that kind of stuff. But the DR, DFR designed for recycle, um, which is kind of an interesting topic that no one really talks about yet, but it's probably something that's going to become more and more important as we run more and more out of resources. Um, and more and more stuff becomes IoT-ified. IoT things, I feel, are the biggest um, uh, violators of the design for recycling. No, I mean, I, I think you, you guys were even referencing in the last podcast how many people are actually doing component level repair anymore most of the time you throw it away and you get a new board because the cost of sitting there and desoldering everything it is astronomical uh in terms of person hours versus you know what these components actually cost so it's like design for recycle sounds nice but what's the footprint of sitting there with a hot air gun and removing things or tearing stuff down? Or I guess it makes sense for larger components. Like if you're working on a tractor and you know, you want um, to get axles and carburetor, like I doubt John Deere is going to scrap an entire tractor, right? Um, they're, they're going to cannibalize good portions of it. I think a, a, a good uh, thing to think about here is that's because of our current uh, our current way of how we work with things. When you have a busted IoT device, I mean, you're not supposed to, but you most people just huck it in the trash, right? So what if you couldn't do that? You actually had to properly recycle or send that somewhere so it actually gets disposed of correctly. And then there's a, then there's a price tag on that now. You know what I think would happen? This is me poking at the two EEs on our quad screen. Um, you're going to see less ICs. You're going to see more system on chips and more FPGAs. And you're going to see more of that hardware level design transfer to firmware where people are going to just minimize the hardware components. You're just going to have a couple of powerful socks, system and packages or FPGAs and passives to you know do what the passives need to do. And all the secret sauce is going to be in the firmware because then you're reducing the component count on the board. I mean, that from a business perspective, it's going to force minimization of the bomb to do that. Yeah, what, what, what's funny is... So boxed down. <laughs> that actually, that solution is very akin to what Parker said earlier about like a phone with urethane in it. Because now <laughs> you're taking all of those parts that were hardware, you're just putting them in an encapsulated package so you're making a PCB that it goes on a PCB is what you're basically suggesting. <laughs> but, <laughs> but with the system on chip, I mean, isn't it less likely to fail in that design? I I think it would, I, maybe it would depend on a be, lot yeah. of things. I mean, it, it seems like some, I don't know. I I haven't dug into that as, as much, but if you're going to, if you keep collapsing it down, it seems like, reliability would improve because it's it's not exposed quite as much eventually they're going to be able to put a battery inside an ic and then the screen inside the ic 
and then you can have a, just the entire phone on the IC. The no, phone is just a silicon die. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's design an 18650 with an IC inside of it. <laughs> and a screen on it. Ooh. <laughs> That's actually what the 18... What it'll do. It'll go... <laughs> <laughs> Designed for fire. Um, that was... Oh, I mean, kind of a side note, but that was one of my frustrations with moving was all these badges and electronics I had, I had these LiPo batteries I had to go find a good way to dispose of. And I, I didn't want to go put those in storage or it's, just, it's crazy how much stuff you accumulate over time. Yeah. It, it's when you actually want to act like properly get rid of something, it's actually kind of difficult to do that. So I had oh, yeah. a whole bunch of, of latex paint that I needed to get rid of like, like quarter gallons that I collected over the years I need to get rid of. So Houston, Texas to get, I called them up. I'm like, is there a place I can like hazmat area? I can bring these and like, no, just like paint something and then throw that thing away when it dries. <laughs> like you creating more waste by like painting cardboard and like wooden stuff to throw that away. They basically want you to dry it out and just throw it away. Yep. Yeah. If it's water-based, at least here in, in California, if it's water-based, I believe you can let it dry out. And then you can chuck it. If it's oil-based, you still have to... It's everything like batteries, motherboards, you know, whatever. Have you guys ever tried to get rid of a refrigerator? It sucks. With a free sign? Yeah, you put it on the corner, put $10 sign on it, and it's gone in the morning. Honestly, that's what I had to do. But before I moved up here, I was trying to get rid of a refrigerator, and I was like, I don't want to spend $100 to go deliver this somewhere for somebody. And it didn't work, and it was a piece of crap. And I just, how do you get rid of it? You put it on Craigslist for free. I yeah. I recently learned... Um, I don't isn't know that what... Is the, hold on. I'm going to jump in. Isn't that what we did with... Isn't that what we do with China, the recycle stuff? <laughs> we just put it on a big cargo ship with a free sign and just ship it over there? They uh they don't do that as much anymore. I, I learned from our we're oddly through my wife who went to like the recycle center on like a tour, but they send a lot of that to I think Vietnam or the Philippines and they clean it up and then they send it to China because China was just sending the containers back to us full of all of our crap because <laughs> uh, it wasn't clean enough for them. But yeah, they they were yeah the containers come here full of stuff and they go back there full of of material. To recycle and who knows where it ends up at that point now i i was just gonna say like recently i've been relying on the trash company and i took the time to read whatever the equivalent of a eula is with our our waste disposal people and twice or four times a year they will pick up four appliances within the dimensions of seven by seven weight doesn't matter so you can tell them, come pick up a couch and a refrigerator, and they'll take it away. I will send them to your house to pick up your fridge. <laughs> I'm all yeah, in Colorado. I, Go drive. Yeah, they're, in our neighborhood, it's called Bulk Collection, and it's four times a year. Yeah, but if you're just about if you're moving in a week, uh, does, That's it true. doesn't that doesn't help you very much. Doesn't work. <laughs> we sold a lot of things on Facebook. I mean, I know we're getting way off topic, but we. Just went on Facebook and just dining room table, chairs, kegerator, the works. So speaking of uh, of waste, 
Let's talk about NFTs real quick. Damn. <laughs> oh, what a pivot. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how we came up with I think I think this was I was asking Zap and Hyron to be on the podcast to talk about right to repair. And then I think I, think I was it was Saturday night and I was drinking and I'm like, huh, NFTs, those are stupid. Um, yeah. So and I put <laughs> NFTs on there and then uh, and I mentioned it in our Slack channel and someone was like, oh, that'd be interesting to talk about. So now we're stuck with that. Okay. So I'll, I'll own up to that. Um, Prop 65 warning, since I'm from California, my opinions are my own, not my employers. And your opinions can, may or may not cause cancer and reproductive harm only in the state of California. <laughs> right. They're known to the state of cancer to cause California. Yeah, pretty much. So for those who may have seen the three letter thing, non-fungible tokens, um, NFT, NFTs. So many people at this point have probably heard of cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, and what's good and bad, I won't talk about what's bad about those, what, what's the limitations of those is when people sell like a Dogecoin, I'm only going to talk about Dogecoin because it's the best, right, to the moon, um, you can sell parts of it, and you don't really uniquely own a Dogecoin. Like, I can own 0.0001 of a Dogecoin, and it's not really traceable. So what a non-fungible token does, in theory, with their, with their, and it's based on the Ethereum blockchain, is that you own an entirety of an item. It has all the same benefits of it's a distributed ledger, so it tracks and and can prove with non-repudiation who owned it and how it exchanged hands. And it adds something special where um, if you want, every time it's sold, the original seller of the digital item gets a royalty. So off the bat, I'm like, this is a way to sell property mostly digital property, but they do some real world property um, and and have like this actual infrastructure in place to track, you know, that it's authentic, who owns it um, and whatnot. But in practice, what's happening is it's turning more into like a collectibles thing. Like imagine if um, I want the Mona Lisa, right? There's only one Mona Lisa, but there's a thousand copies out there, right? But some crazy art collector, if it wasn't a museum, may want to own it. So people are out there selling the original meme. Like someone sold Nyan Cat. Someone sold an NFT for, uh, like Jack Dorsey on Twitter, sold his first tweet. Um, William Shatner sold a picture of like a dental x-ray. So I, I actually this, heard like, someone sold like a few minutes of farting for $400. Yeah. And I look at this and I'm like, I get it. The potential is there, but the way we're doing proof of concepts, I'm sorry, is just freaking stupid. <laughs> it's and like Beanie Babies in the 90s. Yeah. And I try to think about engineering and like, okay, how could we use this? I'm like, you could actually distribute your software licenses this way. And prove who owns what. Like, how dumb is it that when someone says, hey, I made a purchase and look, I got an email from some company. Look, here's a copy of my email that I have a license versus 
What if there was a distributed ledger with non-repudiation that proves you own something? Well, and then um, you could resell it to the next person. Yeah. And, I don't need and this version, proof. this copy of Adobe anymore. Right. Like, you could do that. But as it stands, like, you could go on the marketplace, on one of these Ethereum marketplaces, and, like, for collectors, you could sell a copy of this podcast, and every time it resells, you're like, hey, we get 30 cents. I want 30 cents every time it resells, in the hope that we could raise money for a six-pack. <laughs> <laughs> Please buy our so podcast. I, 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 I do like the concept of NFTs for art in the terms of the of it of it being an original because this is this is bringing back to the mona lisa problem uh issue is there's only one mona lisa and so that's the original and so originals for artwork if it's good art and good art subjective but usually goes for more money than copies or like prints um the problem is uh, there's a lot of artists that only work in the digital realm now and so how do you sell an original digital because it takes just as much effort and just as much work and has the same uh value when someone looks at digital art and goes oh that makes me feel feelings um and so there's how do you capture that and make it so it's not like oh, oh, oh i just right click and say save jpeg on my computer now i got your art i i think it's it's the same motivation that causes people to buy original prints of artwork compared to replications like there are people with disposable income that blow stupid amounts of money on original art versus a reprint of art when they do that they don't care about the artwork necessarily because if all you cared about is having that picture up i mean hell you would just print it off in your inkjet and put it yeah in go to kinko's and get it printed but they use it as a symbol of hey, I'm repping how much money or power or whatever I have to spend $10 million on a painting. Um, and in a way, that's what this allows people to do with digital art. I want to be a collector and I want to own something, even if it's a digital something. Correct. Um, and in reality, that's kind of how it's being used right now. Um, I'll I, say I, it's I, going way the other way of like, beanie babies stuff like that pokemon cards exactly and that's why i was like man from an engineering perspective there's probably cool and really useful applications for doing this like i just threw out like oh that weird zap went offline um like software licenses would be a good example for tracking mm -hmm. digital things how, or, how about we wrap this around and access to manuals for your right to repair are through NFTs. Hey, I bought the physical thing and here's my digital thing and that transaction goes with me and if I were to ever able to sell it, I could go on there and say, hey, look, I sold my my dishwasher to somewhere, or my washer and dryer to somewhere, or my Tesla. Hey, it's digital manual goes with there. Oh, look, now there's proof that you own it and Tesla doesn't need you to upload scans of receipts or anything. Like that would be a really good use for it. You know, uh, I was thinking about it earlier. What about engineering document revision control? If you could NFT your schematic and then you know that this is exactly, you know, Rev 2.0 or whatever. Um, and then you have like exact, like 
you have multiple engineers working on one thing and then and they all conflict with each other who has the original master uh document no you're right that's it's oh god i don't want to repeat it it's (laughs) non-fungible you know that this person has the original like truth core thing of it um but yeah yeah no we we've been starting to see it pop up and it's just like man what the hell you guys are taking good technology and applying it in really ridiculous ways um and someone in chat asked, like, hey, can I sell NFTs on stuff I don't actually own in real life? Yes, you can. And people have done that. And, yeah, you just start, it's no different than, like, can I sell a copy of a painting? Can I sell a copy of the Mona Lisa? I didn't own it. It's just a copy. And, yeah. Um, and then you start running into legality reasons. Yeah. So he says, I'm a cell macrofab for <laughs> one Bitcoin. Bitcoin. <laughs> so isn't that, it's only unique to that blockchain, right? Yeah. It's isolated. You can't tramp. So like it's based on Ethereum blockchain and within that market. So you can't transfer it to Bitcoin or something. But I could create my own blockchain and sell the Mona Lisa on there. Or a copy of somebody's digital art, or another version of Neon Cat, right? right. So like, it's it's only unique within that. So the the community decide basically votes with their dollars. Going back to earlier, mm-hmm. which which blockchain is worth the most, and it's so only the, the uniqueness in that. So then your reputation comes into play. Like if if hypothetically we we sold an NF, NFT of this podcast and did it once. As a gimmick. Don't get any ideas out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then what if you sold it and then two weeks later you go on a different blockchain market that's Ethereum based and you sell an NFT of it again. Then you develop a reputation and the market goes, screw these guys. They're, they're no, just that... trying to make money. But what if somebody else sells this podcast on a different blockchain? Um, I think we can probably go after that person for copyright. <laughs> no, well, oh, so the NFT doesn't mean you have the copyright. It just right. means that, like, like if I buy a book on Amazon, I don't have the copyright for it, but I can turn around and sell that book to someone else, right? It's the exact right. same concept. It's more like a collectible. You own the original book. It, it, it's kind of, you know what? This is NFT- the book Stephen Craig touched. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> it's a certificate okay. of authenticity. That's actually what exactly what is all your it's it's it's, it's like those, for authenticity. It's those like shady sports memorabilia stores in Vegas where half the stuff is no, a third of the stuff is legit and the rest of it it's like, I swear this is a football thrown by OJ Simpson in this game, and you're like, huh? Uh, and they turn around and sell it anyway, and you don't know if it's his signature or not, but they're selling it as authentic. It's it's kind of like that shady collectible like storefront thing. But, I mean, there's big bucks floating around on that. Oh, yeah. But you're right, though. Like, r- repair manuals and, and and proof of ownership going with the transfer of devices. Like, what if I own something and I have the right to repair it, but I sell it? How do you track that that sell has occurred so you can promulgate that right to repair for yeah, everyone? Yeah, that warranty. Like, yeah. I, th- I think that would be a reasonable application of it. I think your your software license example actually works quite well 
because then you know the the manufacturer of the software they would recognize that particular blockchain the digital art thing i don't know maybe it's just a, a trend but i've also been wrong in a lot of stuff I, I just feel like you could just copy rinse and repeat on so many different blockchains that it might devalue it at some point because uh, I, I, to me it feels like a lot of it's just the scarcity yeah, versus the amount of dollars flowing in we should totally do a macro coin like dj 027x in chat says <laughs> do macro coin and then release the podcast on on as an nft on on macro coin i am i'm 100 down for this macro coin idea so send one dollar per coin to at stephen craig and i will distribute macro coins to anyone uh <laughs> up to uh five billion <laughs> I'm down for this. <laughs> Create an NFT of the podcast, and every time it's sold, we get $7.99 in royalties so you can buy a six-pack. That way, every time someone sells that collectible podcast to someone, we at least get a six-pack of beer. I have been idea. playing with, uh, with BitClout, <laughs> which is like a a Twitter based NFT thing. Yeah, I saw uh, that. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Uh I, I put our main account in there and tweeted it and a couple people went in and bought bought some of the coins. The only thing is I don't know how I get the money back out if I wanted to. It seems like you can put Bitcoin in but you can't pull Bitcoin out. It's like Disney dollars. Yeah. Is is there a way to to configure an Arduino to be a mining device such that we can make Arduino core Arducoin or however it works? And the only uh, way to mine this is with Arduinos. <laughs> you know, for a while they were doing that with JavaScript based stuff, but the type of coins you could mine based out of JavaScript and and CPU MCU type cycles is not what like bitcoin like bitcoin requires a gpu type architecture to go through that type of thing um i mean yeah you could mine bitcoin on a microcontroller it just you're going to spend more on batteries and power than what you'll get out of it yeah that hasn't really stopped many people <laughs> that's true you know, you're probably more likely to make money buying and selling video cards than you would trying to mine Bitcoin. Unfortunately, the whole buying video cards right now is uh, not a thing that is possible. Or SAMD 21s or STM 32s. <laughs> True. Anything right now on the market. I'm having a problem getting connectors. Actually, I didn't even check. Is Wimbon hit right now? Like, could you even not get Flash? <laughs> I think everything <laughs> SD cards. <laughs> right, let's wrap up this podcast. Or does okay. anyone have anything else to add to right to repair and NFTs and uh, crapping all over Apple and Tesla? We, we, we should definitely sell this podcast as, as an NFT and see how high it goes. I'm thinking about doing a little research and then seeing if I can make a block, a, a macro coin that the the podcast is on. So you can, you could buy an original of only one copy original of a podcast. And that's the official one. Can, can we, can we get dibs on buying our original podcasts of the other podcasts we were on? 
Yeah, I mean, you got bit with everyone else. <laughs> That's no. not dibs. <laughs> That's not dibs. <laughs> Capitalist dibs? Yeah, you get dibs. Yeah. D- Capitalist dibs is just I called said- opportunity. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, send you, I send you the link, and your episode's like 100x the cost of all the other episodes. Well, we, <laughs> sure, we, you get dibs. We were on episode 69, so that one's going to be pretty popular. <laughs> Yep. Just wait till 420. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling dibs on that one, too. <laughs> All right. Zap, Hyron, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Um, y'all sign us out. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to. That's, that's me, isn't it? Uh, that mm-hmm. was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your guests, Zap and Hyron. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.